and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back with another episode of Cinema, and it's brought to you again by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. Cinema is not movie reviews, and while I'm not going to go into the details of, of all the plot of Psycho 2, and this is not a review of the film, it is an examination of the process of making this movie and how the bar was truly set pretty low. And I know what you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is the sequel to Psycho, you know, one of the greatest horror motion pictures ever made, a game changer, the whole thing, and plus Hitchcock. And you need to understand the context of history and time in which this film was released. And the fact is, the bar was actually set pretty low. But before that, let me give you an example here. And this is years after Psycho 2 came out. And uh, I was at college at Penn State at the time, uh, enjoying my first and only semester there before I was invited not to return. And I sat in my only film course, which was a film criticism course. And I was sitting in there with this professor and he asked a question about sequels and uh, what we thought of them and blah, 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 blah. And he asked for some of us to volunteer if we could, you know, name a sequel that was, you know, better than the original. And I raised my hand and I said, uh, everybody, of course, was, you know, even at that point talking about The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, that even wasn't too old at that point. The Empire Strikes Back was only about three years old at that point. However, I raised my hand and I did use a disclaimer. I said, I am not saying what I'm about to say is superior to Psycho. But what I am going to say is I enjoyed Psycho 2 more than I did Psycho. And before I could finish why I was going to support that statement, this guy flipped on me. And he, he put his hand up and he was like shushing me down. And he was like, yeah, you see, I'm not surprised. And I'm paraphrasing this guy here. But he said basically that, you know, the problem is that you want blood, blood, blood. It's blood and nudity. And it, it kind of brought to mind Peter Vincent's rant against Charlie Brewster when he said the same thing that, you know, uh, your generation doesn't want vampires or vampire killers. What they want are demented men in ski masks hacking up young virgins. And that's basically what this guy was was yelling at me saying that, you know, how could I say that Psycho 2, he had seen the film, uh, it's bloody, it's gory, it has nudity, all the things that Hitchcock didn't do. And I finally said to him, I didn't say it was better. However, I enjoyed it more because, and this is the point of this episode, I didn't go into the film expecting to enjoy it. I expected to go see Psycho 2 in the theaters when it was released in 83 and absolutely hate it. So that's the point of this episode because again, cinema is about the means to do better and people consciously choose not to. And that is not the case with Psycho 2. And they had every opportunity to aim as low as possible and they still would have walked out with some serious bank, and they didn't do it. So let's take a look. First of all, I said, history and context is important to any film, and especially 
to horror. It was summer 1983. There was no internet, no DVDs or DVD extras, and certainly no extras on videotape, which was just starting to hit its stride. There were no sneak peeks, and there were a handful of magazines to get your entertainment and especially your horror news, and Fangoria was mine. And I got my first subscription in 1980, and I kept it throughout most of high school. At one point, I remember my mom coming into my room, seeing the stack of Fangorias, and I'm sure when she would clean my room and stuff, she would just find Fangoria, Fangoria, Fangoria everywhere. And I remember her asking me one time, she said, her, are you sure you don't want like a Playboy or, or some porn or something? And she was a little worried. And I was like, mom, you don't have to worry. Yes, I, I got a girlfriend. Even in eighth grade, I had a, a pretty serious girlfriend. So unlike Norman Bates, I, I did have girlfriends and I didn't depend on my mother and, and I could see boobs at any time. But, but horror? I mean, good horror? Well, that was some serious shit. And it came in the mail addressed to me compliments of Fangoria magazine. Now, if you go back to this time period all the way up to like 82, 83, the, the slasher film dominated 80s horror. I mean, John Carpenter's Halloween hit in right around 1978 and the original Friday the 13th was ripping off at its heels and, and both birthed franchises that, that spanned an entire decade and beyond. They're still with us today. Psychopaths with knives and a variety of tools populated movie houses and, and late night cable and VHS and beta. I mean, most horror scholars will acknowledge the subgenre of the slasher film was peaking, I'm going to say right around 1983. Friday the 13th was even winding down with its 3D installment. And that was to be followed by the, the totally misnamed Friday the 13th for the final chapter. Because we all know that was not the final chapter. I mean, Michael Myers and Dr. Loomis were dead by 1982. And a wrongly titled third Halloween film almost killed the franchise. And go back and listen to my episode on Halloween 3 and how misunderstood that movie was. But we're talking about Psycho and Psycho 2 here. And Norman Bates... Well, he was a little late to the slasher table in the 80s, but maybe that was for the best. I remember there were rumors of a sequel to Hitchcock's Psycho circulating since, I'm going to say about like 1981 as, as far as I can remember. It might have been more. I saw Psycho in 1979 while I was in seventh grade and it knocked me on my ass with that shower scene and the big reveal of Mother. And I remember my mom wanted me to watch it with her. She had seen it in theaters. And so... Psycho was all new to me, even though black and white, I didn't care. I grew up on, on a bevy of black and white universal monster films. So black and white never bothered me at all. We were watching it on television. I think it came on regular network TV uh, right around that time. And it, it wasn't like it was playing all the time. That, that's what I remember. It was kind of pretty fresh. I know I didn't see it on home video. That Christmas brought books on film and horror history, and, and I'm telling you, I read everything, and there wasn't a lot that I could on Hitchcock and the making of Psycho. And I saw Anthony Perkins later that year on the big screen in Disney's uh, Star Wars wannabe misfire, The Black Hole, and I felt like casting was really odd to put Norman Bates in space. I mean, Perkins never escaped the role, and even as young as I was in 1980, and going to see The Black Hole, that was like 80, 81, I remember. I remember thinking like, wow, man, that's, that's Norman Bates and he's in a Disney movie. I mean, the public, I think, felt the same. And it wasn't much later that I started reading blurbs in Newsweek and Time and Rolling Stone. My parents subscribed to Rolling Stone and eventually Fangoria. 
that Perkins was returning to the Bates Motel and the Bates Motel was going to open again for business. So the point of this episode is is to find if Psycho 2 is a true successor to a venerated and important film or was it a cynical cash grab in the weakening stream of slasher films that caught Hollywood's attention? I mean, Roger Ebert nicknamed the slasher the dead teenager movie. I've mentioned that a number of times in previous episodes. And they were simple to write and they were simple to make. The late Wes Craven's 90s classic Scream would parody the entire concept a decade later. Teenagers have sex and they die. Go back and listen to my one previous podcast on Friday the 13th, Got Lucky. These movies were cheap to make, they usually needed no major stars, and you could crank them out quickly. The Saw franchise would hit almost a film a year, remember that? Once that thing got up and running. And these films were fueled by softcore sex, often inventive makeup effects, and would be later seen as launching a few A-list careers. But I remember reading a Time interview in late 1982 or early, early 1983, and Anthony Perkins gave us some scraps from Mother's Tray on the new film that was coming. And he described the upcoming Psycho 2 as Norman returning to the motel and to find that it's become a flop house and a one-night stand kind of haven. And I remember the quote, Mother doesn't like that. In addition to that excitement, I was kind of tempered by the uh-oh feeling of the suck factor. Because even then, you kind of understood that, I don't know, is this one of those just because you can doesn't mean you should things? I mean, I got the same way, and I mentioned this in episode three on, on Jaws 3. When I saw the preview for Jaws 3 almost a year ahead of time in the theaters, I was excited that there was a Jaws 3, but there was that little voice in me going, this is going to suck. This won't be good. And I had that same little voice talking to me about Psycho 2. So I had this figured out. I knew on the suck end of things, it was probably going to be like this. Norman comes home, teens are screwing in the rooms, and the film basically turns into Friday the 13th at the Bates Motel. Fangoria reported some cool behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, I, I read that Jamie Lee Curtis was approached, and then I read that Christopher Walken was considered for Norman if Perkins didn't reprise the role. But in the end, I was going to have to see this. So by spring of 1983, my mind was made up. Psycho 2 was going to suck. I was 15 and in 10th grade, and I was already jaded. The film was on my list along with Return of the Jedi. My summer date roster was set, and that also included Jaws 3D. There was a lot of hype for Psycho 2. This wasn't just going to be another horror movie. This is a sequel to one of the greatest classic horror films ever made. So the nation was abuzz about this. And in fact, if you go to watch Supergirl, 1984 Supergirl, which they shot in 1983, when Supergirl is flying over a drive-in, what's on the screen? Not Star Wars, not Jaws, it's Psycho 2 that's on that drive-in movie screen. So Psycho 2 was being heralded as this big, big movie 22 years later, and Norman Bates is coming home. I still wasn't impressed. I was going to go see this movie, but I was fully expecting to hate it. So with a bunch of friends, I bicycled five miles to the mall and I met my girl there. 
Psycho 2 was in our mall's multiplex biggest house. And the funny part is I would be ushering there by the end of that summer. And I walked in, as I said, ready to hate this movie. I even killed the romantic mojo by saying that I expected this movie to be bad. It'll be a Friday the 13th ripoff, I remember telling her. Because, you know, I just knew everything. So the lights went down. I had this beautiful girl at my side and I'm not even interested in making out with her. I almost want to prove my point to her. I wanted the movie to suck so badly so when the lights came up, I could sound so smart and she could say, ooh, you were right. That movie really sucked. You are so smart. And they did it. They opened with the damn shower scene. And my prediction in my mind at that point was confirmed. Why the shower scene? Was it necessary? Starting the film with the shower scene just reminded us of how much better the first movie was. They opened it with the movie's biggest shocker. I had not coined the phrase at this time, but Psycho 2 was going to be pure cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. We were in for a screw job for almost two hours to come. And then something happened. The screen went black. The opening titles came up with a striking blast of Jerry Goldsmith's score, surprising me and even jolting me in my seat when that da when Psycho 2 came up. And then the ominous tone of, of the horror movie took this maudlin, almost sympathetic turn. And from there on out, I fell in love with Psycho 2. It only took less than two minutes into the film, and I was already loving it. Psycho 2 is one of the best film sequels ever made, and it ranks up there with The Bride of Frankenstein and quality follow-ups to a classic horror motion picture. This film is almost a standalone story, and in some ways, really not very dependent on the first film. Look, a good sequel builds on the characters and events of the previous film, and should take us somewhere new. And of course, Empire Strikes Back is a shining example of this. Only five minutes into the Empire Strikes Back, I knew we were in for something cool and pretty different. And Psycho 2 did exactly the same thing. But the best part is, and why I'm dedicating an episode to this, is that it didn't have to. As I discussed earlier, the, the bar was set pretty low in 1983. I mean, to make a slasher or a horror film, the formula was very basic, and that is gather up some hot bodies, get them naked, wrangle a few gore effects, and basically the thing would write itself and direct itself. Audiences were becoming desensitized. Hell, the original Psycho, I, like I said, was showing on regular television, and the shower scene was part of like a Halloween-themed network clip show kind of stuff. I remember that. They would show, you know, these network shows of, you know, the, the scariest movies of all time. And they would show the shower scene almost in its entirety. So that's how numb we had become. I mean, something that was so shocking in 1960 was now shown on basic TV. Slasher films were getting applause and laughs in theaters. That's right. People were starting to laugh at them now and being entertained like they were wrestling events or something like that. People were not fainting. People were not terrified like the audiences of 1960. Things had changed since Norman went to the asylum 22 years earlier. So we go back to kind of like what my film professor said. And the problem is you want blood and guts and nudity. Story means nothing to you. To call Psycho 2 a great sequel just shows how ignorant you and so many of your generation are to real cinema. 
It's worse than an insult to everything Hitchcock did. Psycho 2 is garbage and nothing more than a pale imitation of a superior film. That's basically what I was told in my class, in front of my entire class, as this guy yelled at me. Like I said, I didn't say Psycho 2 was superior to Psycho. I clearly said it was a successful sequel, and it was a damn good film. I flunked out of Penn State three months later. Almost two decades later, Psycho 2 would be the biggest influence on my directing debut, Camp Dread. I'm telling you, watch Camp Dread, especially the ending of Camp Dread with the twist ending. Cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, says a film has to aim low, even though it has the means to shoot high. This is not the case with Psycho 2. And again, this all starts with Tom Holland's screenplay. Holland as a writer doesn't just give us a continuation of Norman Bates's story. He shades Bates into a flesh and blood human being. He creates a whole new world that goes beyond the Bates Motel. We are introduced to the crew of Statler's Diner or Cafe, whatever you want to call it. There's grizzled but kind owner Ralph Statler, sweet and Christian forgiving old Mrs. Spool, Myrna the waitress who gives Norman some of her piss and vinegar, and well-meaning concerned Dr. Raymond who reluctantly lets Norman return home. Vera Miles returns as a poisonous older Lila Loomis, and Sheriff Hunt provides a folksy pragmatism and is on the fence about Norman, but willing to give the guy a chance. And at the center of it all is the doe-eyed, beautiful Mary Samuels, who clearly has a past. Now, I've, I've heard people say over and over again, uh, online a couple people have said too, that Meg Tilly is really miscast as Mary in this film. I guess that's subjective. Her casting did not bother me. Holland puts all of his characters in orbit around a remorseful, if not rehabilitated Norman Bates. His writing is absolute genius. In the first film, Hitchcock and Joseph Stefano's Norman was a hermit and, so, and like this socially awkward cuckold. Holland turns the tables on the slasher genre. He presents a killer who in many ways is a victim himself. Not since Karloff's Frankenstein monster or Cheney's Larry Talbot have we experienced a killer we end up rooting for and actually feeling sympathy for. By the end of the film, Holland has clearly delivered a wounded Norman and someone who just might have been fine if not screwed with. We don't even know if Norman is seeing the world around him accurately. Is he slipping back into insanity or did he never really leave it? Norman is a victim in this film. There is a conspiracy here. And what could have been a straight-up slasher turns instead into this Agatha Christie potboiler. Sharp dialogue references the first film while also clearly reminding us what Norman did decades earlier was bad. Worse things have taken place, though. Mother and Norman are on the JV murder squad. There is a great piece of dialogue between Dennis Franz, who plays Mr. Toomey, uh, the motel manager while Norman was away, and Anthony Perkins in a scene where they, they confront each other when Norman finally really understands what the Bates Motel has turned into. And Franz uh, basically says to him, like, you know, well, why don't you just try putting me out, Mr. Wacko? And then he ends up yelling at Norman as well, too, when he says, well, at least my customers have a good time. What did yours get, Bates? Dead. That's what they got. Dead. Murdered by you, you loony. So 
we already have someone, in our opinion, who is far worse than Norman. I mean, Norman killed people, and yet he has this very staunch morality about the motel and that it should be a family motel, not the flop house that it's become under Toomey's management. But then there's another great piece of dialogue between Meg Tilly and Anthony Perkins later, when she comes to visit Norman after a confrontation with Norman in the restaurant in, in Statler's Cafe. And she says to Norman, she goes, that Toomey guy, what an asshole. I wanted to kill him. And you were so cool. And Norman, it's so great. Perkins just delivers it in his oh shucks kind of boyish way. He goes, oh, I don't kill people anymore, remember? It's a great line. Watch how he delivers it. You can see they're having some fun with this. And that's all because of Tom Holland's script and that deliciously wonderful dialogue. Every good horror film has a sense of humor. And Tom Holland's script delivers just the right balance. It never tips over into self-parody or even a meta-film. It takes Norman very seriously. And therefore, so do we. The high noon diner standoff between Norman and Dennis Franz's Warren Toomey is a defining moment in the film and nothing in the original Psycho comes close to it in writing and execution. When you watch that film, watch how it's done and just it's done with such subtlety and camera work. And when Norman backs off, it says so much without a stitch of dialogue. This is the result of a writer that decided to take the high road and deliver an actual story and not a to-kill list. The film does slip into some unnecessary gore to give the audience what they've come to expect since the start of the slasher craze. And while the kills work, there are two that stand out. And director Richard Franklin ends the film with its best. There is no doubt. The last minute of Psycho 2 is one of the greatest endings to a horror film put to paper and to screen. And like I said, I paid homage to it to this scene in the conclusion of My Own Camp Dread with Daniel Harris and Eric Roberts. Psycho 2 was shot for about $5 million, I believe, and it wasn't considered a giant film at the time. However, it was treated with respect. Richard Franklin, a, a Hitchcock scholar and gifted filmmaker, was attached as director while the legendary cinematographer Dean Cundy gave the film a bright, almost hopeful, crisp look. Universal secured quality with their budget. By the close of 1983, Psycho 2 was second only to Return of the Jedi in box office power. How's that for surprising? Putting a little extra effort into the making of this film paid off rather than a cynical hit and run and quick cash grab. Franklin is often mistaken as working with Hitchcock. He did not. As a director, Franklin embraced Holland's script. There is no way to step in and try to imitate Hitchcock. And Franklin goes his own way, not afraid to show wide horizons and fuller views of the Bates home. We get a feel for the house this time around, as he basically takes us on a tour. Franklin's direction is a journey of exploration. He takes us outside the house, beyond the motel, and into some very, very dark areas, with a roadmap provided by Tom Holland's script. The film has a heavy plot, but it is deftly handled. It moves without rushing us along, and by the time we get to the end, every single character has changed. Psycho 2 could have been a terrible film, or worse yet, 
It could have been the mediocre, forgettable mess that was the fourth installment. Give yourself a treat and revisit if you've seen it already, but watch Psycho 3. This one was directed by Anthony Perkins. Psycho 3 is another film that could have gone a really cheap and bad route, a cinema route. And instead, Psycho 3 deserves a second look. It's directed with absolute love and care by Perkins, with so many tips of the hat to Hitchcock, and it's got a great script, and most of all, some terrific performances from Diana Scarwood, and also one of my favorite character actresses, Roberta Maxwell. Give yourself a treat and check out Psycho 3, which picks up only about a month after the events of Psycho 2. It has an entirely different look to it. Psycho 3 has a far darker look. I was a little taken aback by it when I went to see it in theaters. Uh, The cinematography is extremely dark with very dark, rich earth colors. Unlike Dean Cundey's cinematography in Psycho 2, which was very sun bleached and very bright. So there are two very different tones to these films. What should have been a two-dimensional slasher, like 1981's Halloween 2, which was a film that just ran on its name alone and was an absolute retread, and in my opinion, a terrible sequel, Psycho 2 instead turned out to be a cleverly mastered piece of work. By Hollywood standards, this should have been a slap job, a paint-by-numbers slasher to cash in on the success of its legendary predecessor, and it could have easily done that. God knows that's what I was expecting when my ass plopped down in that seat all those years ago. However, when the ending credits finished and the lights came up, I went out of that theater and I went right to a bank of payphones in the mall lobby right outside the doors. And I called my folks to let them know I wasn't coming home right away. I bought a ticket to the next show and I sat through Psycho 2 again. This time, looking for more things I didn't catch the first time around. And you know what? I am still doing that over 30 years later. That, folks, is filmmaking. That is a great script. And that is art. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening. Wherever you are in the world, I wish you and yours well and safe being. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.